Hello, greetings, thank you for your interest in spiritual matters, and thank you for joining us. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. James, a brother of the Lord, declares in James 4 and verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, together with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. In 2 Timothy 4, and verse 10, Paul says that Demas forsook him, having loved this present world. So we can see in these passages, the apostles and early Christians did not take a very kind view toward the world around them, looking at it as very hostile, a place that they could not love, and to be a friend of it would be enmity toward God. And yet, in other passages, we see something that might seem slightly different. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you'd need to go out of this world. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, Paul goes on to say that we should do good uh, to all people, especially those in the household of faith. And Peter, as he's working to sum up much of the sentiment of his first letter in verse 19 of chapter 4 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And so we are to be the light of the world, even though the world is our enemy. We cannot avoid association with people in the world, even though they persist in sin. It is not God's will for us to go out of the world. And so, from these passages, we've had this understanding that we're supposed to gain, that there's this tension in Christianity, that we're supposed to not be of the world, but we live in the world. And so that leads us to a very important question. If we're supposed to not be of the world, but in the world, what is our responsibility to the world? As Christians, as we look at what's going on all around us, what are we supposed to participate in and to what extent? To What's our goal here? And this question has been answered in various ways throughout history by various Christians. And in general, as is normal, uh, views have often gone to extremes. On one side, there are some who wish to entirely escape the world. They see themselves having very few, if any, responsibility toward people in the world. And they emphasize the need to get away from this corrupt generation. And they exclude themselves in all kinds of ways. On the other side, as was in a quote from a 
article in the Isthmus, an alternative magazine in Madison, Wisconsin from 2002. Uh, somebody said, we are all working together to progressively build up the kingdom of God in our lifetimes. God has given us the intelligence and conscience we need to create the kingdom amongst ourselves. We're partners with God. Now that kind of quote comes from a post-millennial fueled social gospel approach that believes that Jesus' reign can somehow be established on earth if we diligently work to erase inequality and reduce human suffering. Now this question, and all of its implications about responsibility to the world dominated the late 19th and 20th century discussions in Christianity. There's a tension between being opposed to the things of this world, recognizing the end of all things is at hand, and yet seeing God's desire to overcome injustice and for his people to help those in need. There is a legitimate tension there. Now, many have emphasized this former to the detriment of the latter. The idea that the only time we're concerned about issues is if it directly involves the gospel. On the other hand, many other have emphasized the latter to the detriment of the former. Essentially becoming non-governmental benevolent organizations that's not really grounded in the gospel anymore. Able to and willing to deny historic orthodoxy in Christianity uh, in a desire to be relevant in this movement towards social justice. Some people threw up their hands during the Civil Rights Movement. Well, nothing to do with it because that seemed like social gospel. On the other hand, um, many people will be in Christian churches and, and deny what makes the faith the faith, that Jesus' resurrection, Jesus' exclusivity, uh, and are willing to go anywhere the social justice movement goes, even when it starts to contradict the principles established in Christianity. And so we do well to look in Scripture to see what responsibility the Christian has to the world and to work through these important questions that have arisen. And to do that, we need to recognize that in Scripture, Christians have primary and secondary concerns. We've seen in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christians are to live in the world. In Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, both Paul and Peter will say that Christians have an obligation to respect the earthly authorities to pay taxes and give respect and honor to whom respect and honor are due. Christians are to do good to other people, especially those who are in more difficult conditions for themselves. And they're to love their enemies. We look at Matthew 5.44. Love your enemies is not only talking about people within a, a, a faith environment. It's about anybody. Matthew 25, 36 is about the least of these who are God's people, perhaps. But even there, that sentiment of helping those who are in need uh, is helping Jesus. Galatians 6, 10, we do well to emphasize the especially the household of faith. But Paul does say, do good to everyone. And in James 1, and verse 27, appeared on defile religion, visiting widows and orphans in their distress. It's not restricted in any way, shape, or form to Christian widows and orphans. And so there, there, there is this endeavor to strive to do good in the world. And Romans 12, 16 through 17, Paul has some important principles to, to, that we should keep in mind. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so we're to live at peace, and as much as we can, as it depends on us, and to give thought to what is honorable among people. And so we can't be indifferent 
to those around us. That's not love. In fact, a lot of people think the opposite of love is hate. No, the opposite of love is indifference. Hate is at least a passion, at least has something energizing it. Indifference is, is a complete coldness to somebody else and to the condition of somebody else. And that is why Christians do and should uphold all that is good and the world is good. To stand for what is truly righteous and just in the sight of God. And that's something that we do need to do and should make note of. That especially when there's, it's not hindering our witness of the gospel, we need to stand up and say. And stand up and affirm the people who should be affirmed. And not to resist what is just in the name of, well, it looks like the social gospel. That is not acceptable justification in the sight of God. But we see... That in the New Testament, the telling of the good news of Jesus is the primary effort for Christians in the world. In Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, all authority has been given in, to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. His next thing is not saying erase inequality. No, he, what he says is to go and make disciples of all the nations. In Romans 1 and verse 16, very important, Paul is not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power to salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. That's the means by which God is saving people, not through legislative process, not through other processes. In Acts 8, 4 and 11, 19 through 20, Christians went about preaching the word. Now, as is not terribly surprising, God has a lot of purposes for Christians in the world. So yeah, Christians are to help those in need to stand for what is just and right and give thought to what is honorable in all men. God expects Christians to tell other people about Jesus, to uphold and affirm the faith delivered to one, once for all the saints of Jude 1 and verse 3. Any attempt to set these priorities against each other, as if one offsets the value of the other, is extreme. It's not of God. It's inconsistent with his purposes. We should be able to affirm both of these things at the same time. It is not that we should avoid the one to do the other. We cannot avoid doing good to people and, up and giving thought to what is honorable in the name of preaching the gospel. In the name of preaching the gospel, we cannot avoid what is honorable in the stand for what is right. But we do need to prioritize appropriately, as we see in Jesus and the Apostles. Because while we do have many things we need to do, we need to keep what's primary, primary, and what's secondary, secondary. And you can consider what Jesus did. Now, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is well known for helping and comforting the poor. In fact, Luke 4, 17-21, when he's reading how good the poor have good news preached to them from Isaiah, and this is fulfilled today in your hearing. In Matthew 4, 17-23, he is known for healing and feeding and aiding multitudes. In fact, when Peter is preaching to Cornelius, he's able to summarize Jesus' ministry by saying that he went around doing good in Acts 10 and verse 38. But the healing and good he did was not set apart from his full purpose. It wasn't the main substance of his purpose either. He did those things. He was known for those things. But as he would say himself in Mark, Matthew 4.17 and Mark 1.38, he came to preach the good news of the kingdom of God and the need for repentance. That's what he came to do. And the healing and other good things that he did were demonstrating that the kingdom of God was coming in Jesus. That the good news was coming. That Jesus would reign as Lord. In John 6, we have a great example of this. Jesus feeds 5,000 with bread. And they all want to make him the prophet. They all declare him that he's the Messiah. They want to make him king. He goes away. Some come back to get to see him. And he starts teaching them that, that they've 
come for the food that perishes, and they need to, in fact, uh, yearn for the food that will not perish. That they will need to eat his body and drink his blood, and they all turn away from him. Jesus' purpose was to get them to understand the important bread, the true bread of life from heaven. In Luke 19, the famous story of Zacchaeus, Jesus says that salvation comes to the house of Zacchaeus. He would seek to lodge with Zacchaeus. And he was willing to bear the shame and approach of the community for uh, staying with the sinner of sinners in a town. But he repented. He, he changed his ways. And as Jesus, I came to seek, the, save, seek, seek and save the lost of Israel. That's what he was there for. Now, if Jesus had just come in the name of social justice and the social gospel, would his life and ministry have been really that memorable? All that Jesus did was intended to point to his embodiment of the story of Israel, that he manifested God's character in the flesh, so that it allowed him to live and then die and be raised to give us a victory over sin and death. This is also something that pervades the work of the apostles. In Acts 3, 1 through 10, Peter and John heals a man who had never walked in the name of Jesus. In Acts 14, 8 through 10, Paul healed somebody in Lystra. In Galatians 2.10, uh, Peter and John and James, pillars in the church, had only encouraged uh, Paul to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. But here's the question. Why? To what end? In Acts 3, verse 11 through chapter 4 and verse 4, based upon that healing, Peter proclaims Jesus crucified and resurrected, and 5,000 men believe. In Acts 14, 15 through 18, Paul uh, tries to demonstrate to these Lystrans that the power of God working in him comes from Christ, and tries through that to preach Jesus. And so we do this and, and talk about these things to show that all the good work that Jesus did and that the apostles did in Jesus' name were not ends unto themselves. But they were designed to reconcile man to God and for man to be reconciled to each other. For God's will to be done on earth as is in heaven, as Jesus prayed in Matthew 6.10. And so what God is trying to do in Jesus is reconcile man to one another and to God. John 17.20-23 and Romans 5.6-11. And so yes, that is why as Christians we must be the light of the world and manifest Jesus and God's character that way to humanity. So, in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus is Lord. We serve a risen Savior. In 1 John 4 and verse 5, uh, He who is with us, who is Jesus, is stronger and greater than he who is in the world. We must uphold truth, righteousness, manifestations of the fruit of the Spirit in the name of Jesus, who is the truth, in John 14, 6. Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. We have no basis upon which to resist any movement in the world that affirms what is right and good in the sight of God. And yet, we must not lose sight of the eternal goal. If we provide somebody what is needful for today, it's good. But just doing that does not reconcile a person with his God and with his fellow man by itself. And if a man is not reconciled with God, it's not an eternal good. As with Jesus and the apostles, so it also must be with us. We must do good. And in doing good, we need to proclaim how God sets things right in Jesus Christ and to proclaim the good news of his life, death, resurrection, lordship, and return. Now what about the church? What is the relationship that the church is supposed to have with, with the world? A lot of people in the world who think about the church think about churches primarily in terms of some kind of benevolent organization. They think about churches doing charity work or things of that sort in a community. In Colossians 1, verses 13 and 18, we're told that God has transferred us into the kingdom of his Son. And his Son is the ruler of the body, which is the church. 
In Revelation 1 and verse 6, we're told that uh, God has made us a kingdom. And these and many other scriptures lead us to the conclusion that the kingdom has been established and that the church is the visible organ of that kingdom on earth. So when we look at the scriptures and look at the relationship between this kingdom and the world, we see that it's not exactly the way many have portrayed it. In John 18 and verse 36, Jesus tells Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world. And that, in fact, if it were of this world, his disciples would be fighting, but they're not, which demonstrates it's not of this world. And the kingdom is not of the world. It's not, as many would imagine, to be established here by human effort. After all, if Jesus himself did not think it were wise or appropriate to establish his kingdom on earth, what makes his followers so insistent that they could do what Jesus himself would not or could not? We've already seen from the beginning of our conversation in James 4 and verse 4 and 1 John chapter 2, there's very strong opposition between the things of the world and the things of God. So we can't think that we can just warmly harmonize them. If we're friends of the world, we're enemies of God. It doesn't work any other way. And so we do well to consider, in Scripture, what are the responsibilities of the church and how do they relate to the world? Well, the church does have a very important responsibility to fund and promote evangelism. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul establishes that he has the right to be paid for proclaiming the gospel, and thanks to Philippians for their material gift in Philippians 4, 14-17. We see in Acts 11, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 Timothy 5, that the church assists its own. Um, they are trying to uh, benefit uh, one another in times of need that Christians could, as a church, could give to assist those who are in need of their own congregation or in other congregations uh, who are going through distress. And in 1 Corinthians 14.26 and Hebrews 10.25, the church is to do all things under edification and encouragement. Everything is to be building up and to strengthen. This doesn't quite sound like what you would expect based upon how people in the world look at the church. So why is the church not given a more prominent position in the world? Why are its activities so primarily directed at its own? Well, the logic is established pretty clearly in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, where Paul says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when it, each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now this may seem odd to people who are expecting the church which is the body of Christ, and Christ who we see as a model of selflessness, that the body of Christ would seem to be somewhat, we would say maybe selfish here, that it's about its own building up. But that would be a fundamental misreading of what's going on here, and a fundamental misreading of the purpose of the church. The church's purpose is eternal. It's focusing on what's going to endure, which is a promotion of the word of God and the encouragement of the saints who comprise the church. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, 2 Timothy 4, the Christians are to love each other, build each other up in the body. And the idea is that that will be something that is encouraging other people to be part of the church. Uh, by this all will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, in John 30, 13 and verse 35. 
And simply put, the church doesn't have time to devote itself to any other action but its own aggrandizement and strength, so it may be found acceptable to its head. And Ephesians 5, 22-32, it's to build itself up, it's to strengthen itself. As it strengthens itself, others will become part of it. It is exclusive, not in as much as people from the world cannot become a part of it, but it focuses on itself because it's what it's going to endure. And it has maintained itself as its highest priority. Because consider what happens among denominational organizations who focus highly on social gospel issues. Long ago, they have dis abandoned the distinctive doctrines of the faith. Much of the commitment they have is little different than secularists who like to do good. Now, they have religious fervor, but it's directed at shaming anyone who does not agree with their understandings of civil rights, social justice, and the right conduct. Now, in those organizations, their numbers have plummeted, and those who remain are often not well-grounded in the story of Jesus, and they'd be ashamed of any attempt to evangelize or proselytize. In their zeal to do good works, to quote-unquote bring their kingdom to earth, they've in fact abandoned the kingdom and its ultimate purpose, which is to glorify God in Christ who died and was raised up for us. And that is a good warning sign, because if you are devoting yourself to too many things, you're not going to do any of them well. It is given for individual Christian to be the light in the community, to do good to other people as they have opportunity. It's for the church to build itself up in love, and to welcome and, and let be known the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in the gospel so that they can share in that fellowship and that love. That's, that's the way that the, the, the church is able to uh, really be a great resource and asset to the community, but not for the community's sake, for the sake of Jesus. Because we are as exiles, and there's always that strangeness between us and between the world in which we live. And that is why the church must uphold the truth of God in Christ remain a beacon of light in a dark world, striving to build up its own and to encourage all people to turn away from the world and participate in Jesus. Now, a lot of people take offense at a lot of this, wondering what's so wrong with doing good things and why do we insist on the primacy of pro proclaiming the gospel? Now, some people are motivated by worldly impulses to do that. They're trying to avoid something. That's not the way it should be, and that's not our intention. We're not motivated by hostility towards others. We're not motivated by classism, racism, partisan disagreements, or things of that sort when we try to understand our responsibility to the world as Christians. And if we do so, we should be ashamed of ourselves. But our concerns need to be grounded in a more clear-eyed understanding of both humanity and the fortunes of this world. And the first thing is about humans, that in the world, humans are in a bad state. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God in Romans 3.23. Those who maintain their life in the flesh uh, are hostile to God, Romans 8, 1 through 8, not according to the Spirit. Most live to satisfy their fleshly desires in Galatians 5, 19 through 21 and 1 John 2, 15 through 17. In fact, the majority are said to take the path of least resistance that lead to condemnation. Few are those who take the rugged, difficult path leading to life in Matthew 7, 3, 13 and 14. And likewise, the world is in a bad condition. It's still subject to sin and death, decay and corruption in Romans 5 and 8. Jesus warns people against laying up treasure on earth because of that decay and corruption in Matthew 6, 19-21. The God of this world of 2 Corinthians 4, 4 has deluded many. And the spiritual forces of darkness are very active in the world in Ephesians 6. But in Christ, God gives us humans the opportunity to overcome these difficulties. Through him, we have victory over sin, death, and the forces of evil, as we've mentioned many times. But the long-term forecast of the world is not good. Paul envisions the whole creation being burnt up as with fire in 2 Peter 3, 9-13. 
that God's purposes will finally be fully established in the whatever is called the new heavens and new earth, quote unquote, in which righteousness dwells in Second Peter three thirteen and Revelation twenty one and twenty two. That's why we need to consider what we do and its ultimate value, and that gets us back to priority. What's the end game? What's the end game for the social gospel and social justice movements? Well, let's think about it. What's a world look like in which no one is looked at any differently because of their class or race, and everyone is able to live a comfortable middle-class existence? That's a world where that's, that's pretty good, but has a soul been saved in the process? What will happen to all such people and all that effort when the Lord Jesus returns and the world is purged as with fire? That is why the proclamation of the gospel and salvation of souls must always be our primary goal and motivation and purpose. Because everything else is as the grass of the field. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow, but the word of God endures forever. And all the people who are going to endure are those who obtain the resurrection of life. Those who have been reconciled to God in Christ. Now, are we supposed to do good to people right now? Absolutely. But when we're doing good, we always have to do with a view about how we can, in some way, in some shape, form, or another, encourage them to be reconciled to God. And so we looked at our responsibility to the world. We, don't, we can't imagine we have no responsibility to the world. On the other hand, we also cannot imagine that we can bring the kingdom of God to this world through our feeble efforts. As Christians, we must seek to do good to all men, to love everyone, especially the brethren, but always with a view to proclaiming the gospel, to reconcile man to God and to the people of God. The church, representing the kingdom, has enough to do in standing firm for the truth to serve as that beacon of light in a dark world, to build itself up in love, and to encourage all to be a part of that work. If God's primary work featured social justice in the social gospel, Jesus would have most assuredly established his kingdom in a much more concrete way on earth. It's manifest that the world in its current condition cannot be rehabilitated in that way. And it is given to us as exiles and sojourners in this world, as refugees, to warn everyone to flee the ways of the world before the day of judgment comes. And that is why we, as Jesus the Apostles did before us, should seek to do good to all men with a view to proclaim the good news of Jesus the Christ, crucified, raised from the dead, so that man may be reconciled to God, to avoid neglecting the greater good in favor of seeking lesser good. Again, we're so glad that you've joined us today. We hope that you've been benefited by this. We've had other conversations along this line in terms of ourselves and the world and how we're exiles and sojourners, and we encourage you to consider those previous conversations. Maybe you'd like to read some more about subjects of, of this and like nature. Uh, maybe you'd like to learn more about us at Venice Church of Christ. We encourage you to check us out online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on social media. If you'd also like to get in contact with me, if you'd like to talk about something, uh, have a prayer request or something of that sort, please let me know. Please contact me at deverbovitae.com, www.deverbovitae.com. We again thank you. Have a great day.